Good morning. It's a privilege and honor to be with you this morning to open up God's Word and to hear from the living voice uh, of our living God. Uh, if you have your Bibles with you, I'd encourage you to open to the book of Jude. The book of Jude, small book towards the end of your Bible. If you're at Revelation, just turn a little to the left, and Jude comes directly before Revelation. There's only one chapter, and we're going to be looking at the first four verses of Jude this morning. As we open to the book of Jude, I want to provide some context to the book that will help us understand uh, the message of Jude and its application for us today. So the, the book of Jude is an epistle, or you could say it's a letter. It contains a lot of the literary features of a letter, an opening greeting, and then a body, and then a salutation. And the author identifies himself in the very first verse as Jude, servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now we know through corroborating biblical evidence that the James that is mentioned here is the prominent church leader in the church of Jerusalem. He's the author of the epistle that bears his name that we have in our Bibles, James. Uh, and perhaps most importantly, he is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, as Matthew 13 says. Meaning that Jude, the author of this epistle, is also the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ as well. Now, Jude's purpose for writing, which is uh, a large chunk of what we're going to look at today in our specific passage, uh, can be found early on. Uh, Jude is writing to warn the church or church is, depending on uh, if it was a circular letter, he's writing them to warn them of false teaching that was in her midst and to appeal to them to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints against that false teaching, which brings us to our specific text, verses 1 through 4, which verses 1 through 4 can be nicely broken out into two points. Uh, so you're going to have a two-point sermon here. It's nicely laid out. Verses 1 and 2 is Jude's opening greeting, very characteristic of a letter. And then verses 3 and 4 is Jude's purpose for writing, his appeal to contend for the faith. Now as we look at the book of Jude and at, at this passage, there's a, a set of theological glasses, you could say, that uh, I want us to put on and, and read the book of Jude through, and it's the glasses are provided by Jude himself, if you look at the breakdown of the text. And we can refer to this as the indicative-imperative distinction. Now, an indicative refers to what something is, or you could say what God has done, describes an indicative. An imperative would be what someone must do. So, because God has done this, you must now do this. Theologians have uh, also referred to this as the law-gospel distinction, which could be briefly stated, the law says, do this and live, and the gospel says, it is done so that you might live. So to put it more simply, the law says, do this, and the gospel says, done. And it's that context, you know, that lens in which we'll see Jude's argument and what he's writing, that indicative imperative. This is who you are, and then in light of that, this is what you must do. And we could summarize Jude's main 
theme. This is going to be our, our summary statement, the big idea, the main point for this text, which can be summarized as this. Since we are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, we must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now let's read our text this morning and then pray, seek the Lord for help to understand it. Jude Verses 1 through 4, hear now God's holy and infallible word. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word the words of life. Lord, we thank you that you have spoken and you have spoken clearly. And Lord, we come and ask that you would help us to understand your word. Lord, give us understanding, give us insight into the truths revealed in this text. Lord, help us to, by the power of your spirit, live in light of them trusting in Christ alone to do this. Lord, what we do not know, may you teach us through your word this morning. We pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen. A recent Wall Street Journal article made this startling observation. The fastest growing population on the American religious landscape today is nuns, people who don't identify with any religion. Recent data from the American Family Survey indicates that their numbers increased from 16% in 2007 to 35% in 2018. Reflect on those numbers for a second. In just 11 years, that number has more than doubled in our country. The article goes on to give uh, and to state this. Over the same period, there has been a dramatic decline in the share of the population who identify as Christian from 78% of Americans in 2007 to 65% in 2018. And the rise of nuns is even more dramatic among younger people. 44% of Americans aged 18 to 29 are nuns, a rise of 24% over the last 20 years. Those numbers are sobering. Those numbers should cause us to pause, reflect, and ask the question, what is going on in our culture, in our modern American church? What is happening? You have, at the same time, a rise in people who do not identify with any religion at the same time that you have a decline 
in the people who specifically identify as Christians. And I think as Al Mohler's new book states it very well, there is a gathering storm coming on the horizon. But I believe that our passage from Jude this morning gives us reason for hope. It has a lot to say about what we do in our current cultural situation. And rather than despairing, I think the message that Jude gives us is one of hope and one of confidence that we can go forth from here. Um, So how do we combat the rise of secularism in our culture? How do we combat the seeming collapse of Christianity that is happening in our culture? How do we combat the false teaching that seems to be so prevalent on TV, on YouTube, in books, on social media that masquerades as Christianity and that seeps into the church? And brothers and sisters could seep into our church. What do we do about this? Well, Jude has a lot to say. We must contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I have to say this. I'll say this as a preliminary. We'll, we'll address a specific figure in the, past, in the past that we can learn from. But I, I want to say this as a note of encouragement, not to despair. This is not new territory for the church. The church throughout church history has faced immense pressure, persecution, times of difficulty, and God was faithful to his people. And he will continue to be faithful to his people. Christ will continue to build his church against all opposition. And so we have much we can learn from those who have gone before us in church history, how they persevered in difficulty and how they contended for the faith. We'll look at one such example a little later on. But before we arrive at that imperative, that command to contend for the faith, Jude provides us with an incredibly important indicative, that declaration of who you are in Christ. And that is the fuel You'd say it's the engine that powers us to then go forth and contend for the faith, which then brings us to that first point, our first point uh, in this morning's sermon, which is we are beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Let's read verse 1 again. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. This is traditional greeting, but it's, it's not just an ordinary greeting. This is a gospel-saturated greeting, one in which there are some deep theological truths. Just to be unpacked in two brief sentences, um, it's the gospel foundation, you could say, that Jude is laying for his readers that would then prepare them for the fight that he's about to call them to. And notice here the Trinitarian nature of this greeting, and of these, these gospel truths. Beloved in God the Father, kept 
for Jesus Christ. And I would argue it's the Holy Spirit that is at work in the background to actually make those a reality, to apply to us, to bring us the salvation that Christ has obtained. And so this greeting is Trinitarian to its core. It's gospel to its core. But I want to focus on, on just the one. We don't have time to address both um, everything that's, that's addressed here. You could have a whole sermon on, on each of those descriptions, called and beloved and kept. But I want to just focus on the uh, aspect that we are kept for Jesus Christ. And I would argue, not only are we kept for Christ, but we are kept by Christ. Turn with me to the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 27 through 30. And as we do so, I want to bring to our attention, the, the, I think, the clear doctrinal teaching that's, that's found both in John and in Jude, that Jude assumes and lays the foundation for, uh, which is known as, as the perseverance, or as I prefer, the, the preservation of the saints. This glorious gospel truth that God's elect will persevere in the faith because it is God who sustains them. It is God who sustains them. So let's look at John 10 to see this, starting at verse 27. These are the words of Christ. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. There is a unified mission of the Godhead that not one of Christ's sheep will be lost. Christ holds them secure. God the Father holds them secure. God sustains his people. And it's to that doctrinal foundation that Jude calls his readers to remember and to believe as he prepares them to wage battle. And I would remind you today, Christians, brothers and sisters, of that glorious truth. You are not only kept for Christ, you are kept by Christ. You are secure in him. Nothing can snatch you out of his hand. Do not look to your own strength. Do not look to your own good works to try and persevere, but look to the finished work of Christ and to him alone, because he is a faithful Savior who will sustain you. And it's that reality, that reality that prepares us to engage in theological war. Which brings us to the second point this morning, which is that we must contend for the faith. Let's read verses, or just verse 3 for now. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And I want us to see urgency in Jude's appeal. The urgency in Jude's appeal. Jude was eager to write initially about our common salvation, but something more urgent 
Something more pressing was at stake. And I want us to grasp that. Jude wanted to write about our common salvation, the great faith that we share in Christ, our union with him, the blessings of knowing Christ and the gospel. I can can hardly think of a more glorious and wonderful thing to talk about than that. And yet Jude says something more urgent is at hand that needs to be addressed. That should get our attention. Our eyes and our ears should now be on full alert of like, okay, Jude, if, if you wanted to write about our common salvation, but something more important than that is at hand, I need to listen. Because what you're about to say is, is very important. Um, and as we'll see, it is. But the second thing I want us to notice, notice here is, who is this appeal made to? Because this is a, a key element in, you could, in apologetics or contending for the faith. Who is this appeal made to? It's made to the whole church. Not just certain Christians. Not just the elders of a church, although I would argue that elders are certainly the ones to lead on this front, as Titus 1.9 states that elders are to teach what accords with sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. But it's not just elders that are called to do this. It's not just, you know, those Green Beret type Christians. The Marine, you know, the, he's the real go-getter. Or she's the real go-getter. You know, she loves doctrine. She loves church history. You know, she let her do that. Let him do that. No, 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 no. This is to every believer. And think back to Jude's greeting. Who does he greet? Who is this letter addressed to? To those who are called, loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Is there any true believer out there that those would not be descriptors of? If you are a true believer, you have been called. You are beloved in God the Father. You are kept for Jesus Christ. And so Jude's appeal is made to the church as a whole. Every single believer is to contend for the faith. Now, for some who maybe are not totally convinced... Maybe you're just, I don't know, contending, you know, apologetics. It just seems so mean. You know, you have, you, like, you have to argue and all these things. And I don't know, it just, I don't know if I'm called to that. Let me help and illustrate it with something. That I want you to picture someone that you care very deeply about. Could be a spouse. Could be a parent, brother, sister, a best friend. Now, if you saw that person being threatened and attacked, would you not do everything in your power to jump in and protect and defend that person? Christian husbands, if your wife was being threatened or being attacked by someone, would you not do everything in your strength to intervene, protect, and defend her with everything that you have? Absolutely you would. Christian parents, if your child, Christian grandparents, if your grandchildren were under attack or being threatened or in danger, would you not do everything in your power to protect and defend them? 
Absolutely you would. Because we love them. We love them dearly. That is why we protect them. And so if we love Christ and the truth revealed in his word, would we not fight and protect it when it is under attack? One of my favorite quotes by John Calvin is that he states, A dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward if I saw that God's truth was being attacked and yet would remain silent. A coward. May that not be true of us. May we not be cowards, but fight and stand for the truth of Christ. Now, what does it mean to contend for the faith? Now that we've seen this is a call to every single believer, what does it look like? What does it mean to contend for the faith? And secondly, what is the faith that Jude here specifically refers to? He says, the faith, once for all, delivered to the saints. We'll tackle them in order. Firstly, what does it mean to contend? The word here in the Greek, it's one of my favorite new words. Um, you can write this one down, memorize it, you can impress your friends and your family tomorrow. Um, it's the Greek word epagonizomai. Epagonizomai. Now, that word should sound somewhat familiar to us. Agonizomai. Agonize. Agony. And that, in this sense, is very true of what the word means. The word means to strive diligently, even painfully at times, to put forth a tremendous effort and amount of work. And remember, this is given to every single believer in the congregation. Every believer is commanded to defend and contend for the faith with diligence and this tremendous amount of effort. This is going to be hard work. No doubt about it. This is going to be hard work. This is preparing for war. And war is not easy. Think about the training that our armed forces go through as they prepare for war. There's a reason why when you join the army or any number of armed forces, there's a reason why they don't send you directly to the front lines. Why is that? Because it would be catastrophic. You need training. You need to be prepared. Because war is gruesome. War is difficult. And so we as Christians, we are in spiritual war. And so we need to be prepared. Have we given as much effort that our armed forces go to prepare for physical battle? Have we given that much effort to prepare for spiritual battle? We should. We should be that diligent in our attempt to know what we believe, why we believe it, and to contend for that. But if we were to give that much effort to contend for the faith, we need to know what the faith is. What is this faith that Jude here refers to in this context? So the faith that Jude refers to, simply put, is a set of core doctrinal beliefs that we believe as 
Christians. Now, specifically right here, Judas, he's not referring to one's individual faith, although that is a vitally important aspect of Christianity. One's personal faith in Christ. You know, saving faith. Uh, that is of the utmost importance. But what Jude has in mind here is a more objective set of teachings and doctrines um, that comprise the basic teachings of Christianity. You see this throughout the New Testament in certain areas. Say, for example, in Acts 2, when it said that the disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Um, when Paul tells Timothy to hold fast to the pattern of sound words or to guard the good deposit that's been entrusted to you, there's reference there to a core set of doctrinal and theological truths that are there that comprise the basics of Christianity. And as Scott Olfen has stated, when Scripture speaks of the faith in this context, it is referring to a body of truths or doctrines we come to believe when we trust in Christ. Now, I want us, I had mentioned. Uh, we'll touch upon someone who contended for the faith. Um, and now we come to who that person is. What does it look like to contend for the faith? I want to give us a, a brief example from the um, pages of church history. Uh, and this comes from a man named Athanasius. Athanasius. If you're looking for a good baby name, Athanasius, top of the list. Put it there right now. Um, Athanasius was a bishop in the city of Alexandria, Egypt, and he lived in the 4th century, uh, so 300, um, about this, the whole span of the 300s. Um, and Athanasius, for basically his entire life, was engaged in war. Not physical war, but spiritual war, to fighting and defending for the truth that Jesus is fully God, he fought tooth and nail to defend this truth. So much so, you know, we say, Jude, the, the, the letter, the word for contend has that agonizomai, the agonize. Athanasius fought so hard and contended and agonized that he was kicked out of his church five times. Five times. And yet he stood firm on the truth that Jesus is fully God. He stood on the scriptures. It's been his whole life battling. And we are indebted to Athanasius. Whether you, you might not even realize it, but if you sit here and you, you confess the truth and the doctrines of the Trinity, you are indebted to Athanasius in some form uh, for his articulation and defense of that core biblical truth against error. And so someone in church history who contended for the faith, uh, Athanasius. So if we are to contend for that faith, for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, we must know the faith. Seems rather basic, but we must know what we believe and why we believe it so that we can contend for it. Uh, we must know what these truths and these doctrines are that God reveals to us in the scriptures. So how do we do this? How do we prepare ourselves for spiritual war, for the fight that every Christian is commanded to do? Well, I want to provide some uh, basic yet helpful uh, antidotes to 
how we do this. First, first and foremost, this is absolute bedrock, foundational. Read your Bible. Read your Bible over and over and over again. And then when you finish it, start it again. And just read it as often as you can. I would challenge you to read through the Bible in a year. And then just continue to do that. Familiarize yourself with the truths, the narrative, the stories, the, the teachings of Scripture. And seek to diligently understand them. If there's something you don't understand in the Word, ask a pastor, ask an elder, look up commentaries to try and understand uh, what God is saying. Pray daily. Now this one, I recognize this is, this is a difficult one. I am preaching to myself right now because I struggle to pray daily. But pray daily. Study the great creeds and confessions of our faith. These great statements that were hammered out in the midst of theological battle that have come down to us with uh, just rich biblical truth. Study these things. Read the great theologians of the past. Read Athanasius. Read his treatment on the incarnation and, and the, the beauty of, of what it means that Christ was the God-man. God in the flesh. You know, read those men. Read Augustine. Read Luther. Read Calvin. Read these great men. You know, we live in an age of distraction. We are so distracted. Even right now, there are temptations to be distracted. And that's probably the thing in one of your pockets right now that beeps and rings and you can visit social media and all those things on. Your phone is a tremendous distraction. We have to to turn off these distractions. They're not bad in and of themselves, but man, think about the amount of time that we lose staring at screens. Turn, turn off the cell phones. Turn off the TV. Turn off the video games. Turn off social media. Wake up an hour early and spend it on your knees in prayer and in God's word. Because he's worth it. He is worth it. It's by knowing the faith that we can combat false teaching when it arises. If you know the real and genuine thing, you can spot a counterfeit a mile away. I'm not sure if this is how the practice still goes on, um, but I know in, in uh, much of the 20th century, one of the ways that people would train to spot counterfeit money was they would not spend all their time studying all the various permutations of potential counterfeit money out there. What they would do is they would study the real and authentic thing. They would become so familiar with what the real thing felt like, what it looked like, what it, even what it smelled like, so that when they were given a counterfeit, they could tell right away it was fake because they were so intimately familiar with the real and true thing. And it's very similar for us. We must know the truth that intimately that we can spot false teaching when it arises. We're going to look briefly at verse 4 um, to see what one of those errors was that existed in Jude's day and still exists in our day. It's just taken on a, a little different form uh, than it potentially did in Jude's day. So verse 4, 
Um, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. What's significant about this is that if you know the true Christ, you can spot a false Christ from a mile away. If you know the true Christ, you can spot a false one. This is what the false teachers in Jude's day were doing. Um, They were denying our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, what's the significance that Jude ascribes those two titles to Christ, Master and Lord? Well, the significance I want to focus on is the word that we translate as Lord. The most, in the Old Testament translation into Greek, known as the Septuagint, the most common way that they would translate Yahweh, God's covenant name, was kurios, or Lord. And so when, the old, when people would read the Old Testament and they come, came across God, it would be Lord. That's why um, in your Bible when you have Lord and it's all caps, but some of the letters are smaller, that's the divine covenant name that they are translating. You could translate that as Yahweh. Um, and so when Jude ascribes this title of Lord to Christ, he is affirming the full divinity of Christ, that he is fully God. He is Yahweh. And that identification of Jesus as God, the significance of the false teacher's denial of this truth, cannot be overstated enough. This is of vital importance. If you get Jesus wrong, you get the gospel wrong. If you have a false Christ, you have a false gospel. And so it's imperative that we get Christ correct, that we understand who he is as revealed in his word. That's why it's so important. There's one error that exists in, in our day that it's taken this form. It's known as kenotic Christology or kenosis. Uh, it's from the Greek word that means to empty oneself. And they get their main text from Philippians 2 when it said that Christ emptied himself. And there are people in what they would call themselves evangelicals who would say, no, when Christ emptied himself, what he did was he emptied himself of full divinity that when he was here on earth, he ceased to be God. Now, aside from the fact that Philippians 2 actually tells us what that emptying looks like and what it does, that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, it says nothing about Christ laying aside his divinity. It says nothing about that. So aside from the fact that they take Philippians 2 out of context, think about this for a second. We don't have time to go into a full refutation of this. But if Jesus could set aside his deity, he was never God in the first place. Because God, by his very nature, can not cease to be God. It goes against his very nature. He is immutably God, unchangingly God. And so um, it's an error that exists widely. And you might not even know it. 
Um, the people who propound this have very large churches, and one of the most effective ways that they spread their teaching is through music. I would venture to say that if you've listened to Christian radio this week, you've probably heard a song from this particular group. And you may not even realize the teaching that they propound. But it's vitally important to be aware of this. We are warned of this. It's imperative that we know what we believe, why we believe it, and to contend earnestly for the truth of the gospel, both to those outside of the church who would raise opposition and to those inside the church who would spread false teaching. It's vital. And we read in 2 Timothy 4 earlier that people will accumulate for themselves teachers who will teach what they want to hear, that will tickle their itching ears. And Jude here is writing to a church, warning them of false teaching in her midst. We have to be on guard. We have to be on guard. We must agonize for the truth of Christianity because Christ and his glory are worth fighting for. They are worth fighting for. Now, as we wrap things up in, in, in conclusion, I want, to restri- want to remind us that the fuel for contending for the faith against false teaching is that beautiful truth that we looked at earlier that Jude lays out in the first verse, that we are kept for Christ and we are kept by Christ. That is the engine that powers us to go and defend and contend for the faith. That was the fuel that empowered the apostles in the early church. You read through the book of Acts, and you start out with 11 confused disciples. And then by the end of it, they've turned the world upside down. They've literally turned the world upside down with their teaching. What happened? They were empowered by the Spirit, believing in the, in the, the glorious truths of the gospel that Christ said, I will never leave you or forsake you. You are secure in me. And they stood fast against any form of opposition. Christ will continue to build his church. Now as a final note of encouragement this morning, as we seek to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, let us remember this truth, that the Great Commission is guaranteed It is a guarantee. Christ will continue to build his church. A promise that we can rest on. He will build his church through all forms of opposition. And therefore we can contend and fight for the truth with confidence. Because we we know the ultimate battle, the victory is won. It's assured. Christ will do this. He will. So as we leave, remember the Great Commission is guaranteed. So let's get to work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks this morning for your word. Lord, the beauty of your gospel that we are called, we are beloved in God the Father, we are kept 
for Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to rest in that truth, to believe that truth, to not look to ourselves for assurance, to not look to ourselves to persevere in our own power, but to look solely at Christ. And Lord, help us to contend, to fight for, to strive for the faith. Lord, would you be glorified in this? Lord, continue to build your church. And let us go forth with confidence that you will do this as you have promised. For it's in your name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, that we pray, saying, Amen.